Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 257th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Beth Jones. Beth is the co-founder of Third Eye Associates, an independent RA in the Hudson Valley of New York that oversees $125 million of assets under advisement for nearly 200 client households. What's unique about Beth, though, is the way her firm goes deep in its financial planning process with new clients, spanning a series of seven initial meetings that go deeply into creating a personal vision statement to help clients truly understand what they need to do to align their money with their values. In this episode, we talk in depth about Beth's financial planning process with clients, including assessments like a wellness worksheet and a communication preferences tool that she uses to determine how best to work with new clients, how Beth leverages eMoney Advisors account aggregation to spark client conversations around their household cash flow, and why Beth still chooses to provide a physical financial plan deliverable to clients, even as she acknowledges that relatively few open the plan again after it's first delivered. We also talk about how Beth structures her advisory fees with clients, the way she arranges an upfront multi-month retainer fee based on the initial complexity of the client and the number of meetings she anticipates it'll take to cover all their issues, why Beth also charges an AUM fee to monitor client portfolios, but has chosen to work with AssetMark as her TAMP of choice to implement portfolios, and how becoming known for her in-depth financial planning discovery process has led Beth's firm to have a waiting list for her new clients after more than 15 years of growth. And be certain to listen to the end, where Beth shares how the greatest challenge of scaling up her advisor firm isn't been about continuing to find new clients, but finding the new team members to serve them. How Beth ultimately made the decision to let go of 85 of her earliest clients after discovering that she was actually losing money on serving them. And how Beth navigated the challenging transition of finding out that her co-founder was ready to retire while Beth wanted to continue running the business and serving clients longer. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Beth Jones. Welcome, Beth Jones, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. And a number of years ago, I I'd kind of fall in love with this quote from Mitch Anthony that when life goes in transition, money goes in motion. And and I, I think for for some of our industry, including perhaps Mitch, originally when he had put that forth, it, w- it was sort of like a, a calling sign for advisors about how to find business opportunities. I.e., like you know, if you're if you're in the business of managing client portfolios, you should try to find people who are in transition because when they're in transition, their money tends to go in motion, which means there are opportunities. Right? Yeah, you know, someone dies, someone's married, someone's divorced. Right, just those kinds of life transitions tend to mean money is moving, right? Divorce settlements, life insurance proceeds, do- dollars are in play that creates business opportunities. But I know you've taken this to another level, which is building an advice business around the transitions with a, a lengthy multi-meeting planning process we'll get into later to really help them manage the transitions that they may be in the midst of. And and while, as Mitch Anthony said, when life goes in transition, money goes in motion, and, and there may, may well be investment management opportunities that come after the transition, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about what this really looks like when you build an advice business that's focused on the transitions themselves, first and foremost, for which I, I know you charge a standalone advice fee, and, and perhaps some investment management opportunities come later because 
there is usually money in motion when clients have lives in transition. Right. Absolutely. And uh, we have a lot, we have a lot of that going on. So we do, uh, most people that do come to us, um, not all, but most people that come to us do want us to help them with their assets. And we use a TAMP to handle the um, investment management part, but we design the investment plans based on all the life planning work or the transition work that we're doing with the client. So it, it is a, another uh, revenue source, but it's always after the planning before we do that piece, because we don't know what we're, what we're planning for. We don't know what what they want to do so so talk to us a little bit more about just the 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 clientele that you work with and and like who you're doing this for well we have a few different targeted markets i'm married to susan simon we started our company together in 2005 so we back in the day when i got in the business in the late 90s we needed to be really up to speed on how do you help lgbtq the community, how do you help them plan for their life when marriage uh, quality wasn't an option? So that was kind of my entry into the business. When I was in New York working for a small boutique firm, that was our client base. We didn't really work with anybody else. So I got really good at and understood, studied about that whole world, estate planning, and how do, how do you help folks have a safe space to talk about their money in an authentic way rather than pretending that they're not gay and, and, you know, dealing with a broker in a brokerage house. So that was a really important piece. I mean, I kind of came in the business to help people. So that's a major part of our business, but we, but we don't discriminate and we do focus on people that tend to live a more holistic life that uh, people that care about the environment, people that care about their dollars in their community. So we, do a couple things, a couple small things that that sort of bring those people to us. Since we've relocated to the Hudson Valley and created Third Eye Associates, we we really have tried to find ways to reach the right kind of people. We like to find, you know, people with a similar approach to life that want a place to go where they where they have that safety to bring all of them and what they don't know about money, and then we help educate them and how to kind of get a, get your head around all your money. We give them great tools and then a great infrastructure for moving forward in life. So so we have those folks. We have, of course, anybody going through transition. We have a lot of women that come to us that are looking for, you know, a great place where they can feel safe. We also have a lot of guys that bring, they bring their wife to us because they know they're either older or they have health issues or they know they're not going to live as long as their wife. So they come and they say, listen, I want my wife to have a safe place to go, that somebody authentic is going to take care of them and not not be just taking advantage of them. So so that was kind of an interesting thing that I noticed I was getting some of that and a lot of professional people, so a lot of self-employed people, of course. And uh, like I said, we don't discriminate. So, you know, we take care of lots of people, but they tend to be people who are in need of these kind of services where they get a whole you know, we can build a whole infrastructure for them around their money and give them great tools and educate them. We do a lot of education. So that's a little bit about the people we take care of. So I'm, I'm struck that I, I feel like I, I heard a few times in there, this kind of framing of we, we create a safe space for them. We create a safe place for them to go. Uh, can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I just, I don't, don't hear a lot of advisors necessarily framing that as part of the, the the value proposition. We're a safe space. Yeah. So initially, in the early years of my career, um, it was really my encore career because I used to be in design work and um, 
you know, graphics. But I had a community of people that might have worked with Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or one of these big brokerage houses, but they didn't even tell their broker who was just selling a product, you know, they didn't tell them that they were gay. And so any advice they'd give them was like, well, when you get married or when you have a kid or whatever, and it was had no relationship to them. So it's like, you know, they would come to us and they'd say, God, I just need a place where I can just be myself and communicate all those aspects of my life and get some planning done. So that was my initial entry into the business. And of course, when there was no marriage equality, you know, you had to know how to structure things in a way that you could still support people to have things go the way they wanted to go. And then the other people that come to us and ask us, you know, they, they, they want a safe space because they know that we really focus on education. We're not getting, we're not doing any revenue shares with other people. There's no investment houses that are giving us a little, you know, residual income. I like to call it kickbacks, but they like to call it residual income. But we don't have any of that built in. We're a registered investment advisory firm. So we're fee only and we only work for our clients and we tell them exactly what it costs to work with us. So they appreciate the transparency and most of the people who come to us do not know anything about money. They're just a little bit freaked out or they've been throwing money at accounts, hoping it turns out. And uh, in working with us, they know that we have this process that we go through. Typically, we'll even on the life planning side, we'll work with them for a good six months, like a very deep dive discovery process where we're really getting to understand what motivates them, what their fundamental values are, who are the cast of characters in their life that they need to kind of keep an eye on or look after or support. And then, you know, what are their wildest dreams and ideas about what they, how they'd like to, you know, live their life and how do we get them from where they are to where they want to be sooner rather than one day someday. So we do get a lot of people that don't have a solid understanding of money. So help me understand a little bit more of just how this, how this works in practice. Like just when you talk about a, a, a deep dive discovery process and and a, an initial life planning process that can span six months. Like just walk me through that a little bit more. I mean, if I if I've just said like Beth, this stuff you're talking about sounds great. I don't know that much about money. I'm 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 feeling unsettled. I really need someone to help. Uh, uh, your firm seems great. Like sign me up. I'm ready to become a client. And like I'm coming on board now. How does this work? Like what happens? Well, basically we we do a series of meetings, tend to do about seven meetings. Sometimes it's nine meetings. It really depends on the complexity of the client and what their immediate needs are. But in the financial life planning process, we give them some exercises to do. We collect data. So we collect the same data probably uh, any any good uh, financial planner should be collecting, but we we want to get all that technical data in by about the third meeting. And we just, uh, the, you know, the we want to understand how people like to communicate. So we have a communication preference uh, exercise. We have, we have them look at their life today when they're starting with us, uh, like a wellness check sheet, like a uh, checklist, go through the, go through the, and give yourself a rating on a scale of one to 10 in each of these areas of life. And, you know, we find that people come to talk about money, but what, they often find out is that they improve their health or they lose some weight or, you know, they, they kind of uh, get a little more integrative in the way that they live their life, which is really fascinating. So, and then, you know, we have different exercises. We, we utilize the Kinder Institute exercises as well as, you know, some things that we've made, you know, like we, we have people go through some discovery questions about what's important to them. They have any regrets, you know, uh, any, any concerns for their future, 
things like that, what they're, you know, what's, what's, what's really keeps them up at night, that kind of thing. Although we don't language it that way, but like, what are those things that are rolling around their head that they're not really dealing with? And then ultimately we want to help them create a vision for their life. So we, we uh, have an exercise for them to, you know, after the other exercises, start to see some themes in people's lives. And then we ultimately work with them to create a, a brief, succinct vision statement for their life. And then we work on the obstacles that get in the way of having that life fulfilled. So, you know, we list it out. We don't do a lot with the obstacles, but what we find is at the end of the process, when people go back and review all this work we've done, all the life planning work, they will look at the obstacles and they often say, wow, a third of that is gone because they've actually acknowledged the obstacles. And now when the obstacles pop up in their face, in their life, they can go, oh yeah, that's just an obstacle and just keep going based on the vision statement that they've created. So for instance, I'll give you my vision statement for my life is to live a purposeful life, inspiring others with integrity and love. So when I was doing the kinder work in the beginning, because we do it before we get uh, certified to, you know, to do the work with clients, the more I get underneath, like, what's, what's the why for me? Why does that matter? And really, you know, I like to make a difference in the world every day. And sometimes it's a small difference and sometimes it's a little bit bigger, but I, I enjoy impacting humanity every day in my life. So that's really kind of a driving thing. You know, prior to being a financial advisor, I, I, um, I owned other businesses and had varying levels of success. Uh, you know, like you talk about the iceberg. Well, I'd get a lot of industry awards in my prior business, but I didn't know how to manage money. So I kind of learned all that, you know, through life experience. So when I came to this business, it was like, wow, how can I take that life experience and shorten that timeline for other people? And so that's, you know, kind of what makes me tick and gets me out of bed in the morning. So walk me through a little bit more of just how this meeting sequence actually goes just you know when i when i look at a lot of advisory firms i mean we've 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 done some research around this from just from the 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 kits's platform you mo- most advisors get through get through the planning process in anywhere from 2 to 4 meetings like you know data gathering and present or data gathering present and implementation is probably the most common most common versions so you're you're talking about this like seven to nine meeting process with all these exercises, just very, very different process than what a lot of other advisors use. So I want to, I want to understand this more. So just like, where does it start? I mean, if I'm coming on board, like signed up, Beth, sign me up. I want to do your thing. This sounds great. Like what's the first meeting? How does this get started? So the, the first meeting is really just to sort of glean from the potential client. Like what is it that they're looking for? What has them contact us at this point in their life? you know, what's the complexity, what are their assets, where are they at? And usually they provide some basic information about themselves and their statements or something. So we can get a sense of how complex the the planning process will be for them. And then, you know, meeting two and three is really working on some exercises, answering to some discovery questions. And we poke and prod people a little bit to try to understand in a deeper manner, like what's important to them. And, and then we start to do some work in the background on the cash flow. Our plans are all built around how do people get money and how do they spend their money? It's really foundational. I tell them it's the secret sauce to having anything you want in life. That is like foundational. So 
Most people just try not to spend too much. They try to save money regularly. Some people don't even pay attention. They just spend whatever they want to spend and they have debt. They don't know, you know, they don't know how they're doing or if it's going to be okay or not. So we uh, check in on that cash flow document that we work on together over the course of about two or three meetings to get it finalized before we can actually do the formal written financial plan. And so about meeting five, we're doing, we've done an analysis of the investments. We're still working on putting the plan together, but now we've got a pretty good idea from the first four meetings of what's really important. What does the client want to accomplish in their life and what are the timelines for those goals? So then by meeting five and six, working on that draft financial plan and we're we're doing an analysis of the investments. Sometimes people are ready to get those investments reorganized and then we create investment plans working with a third party asset management firm. We use AssetMark exclusively. We we think that they do a great job and their their company really, their value system aligns with ours. So we feel very comfortable. They're a great partner and they've helped us build our business over many years. So and then by meeting Seven, we're delivering the final financial plan and, and making sure that we're really focused on that implementation process. Have they finished the estate planning? Through the process, we analyze their tax returns. And of course, I think most people do that, but we actually find out, is that accountant that you're working with, if you're working with one, appropriate for your life situation? And do we need to recommend somebody else? You know, So you know, we look at their professionals, make sure they have the proper people in place to support them and in the tax area and also in the um, estate planning area. So, so f- as you're diving in with the first meeting, you'd said a lot of this is kind of what are they looking for? Why do they contact us? Or like what what's the complexity? Right? Like what's the what's going on here? So I'm I'm presuming then that that means when when someone says they they want to come on board with the client, like you you may not even yet be at the stage of actually figuring out the scope of the engagement or setting a fee for them yet because you have to get through that first meeting just to figure out what complexities you're dealing exactly. with. Exactly. Yes, that's true. So by the end of that first meeting, if if they've provided me with the basic financial data and we have this dialogue, I can see do they have 25 accounts spread all over the universe or do they have, you know, some sort of consolidation and some organization and their and their investments aren't in terrible shape. So I get a sense of it. And then they talk about what are the things that we're going to, you know, that they want to address. So I can tell, you know, are we doing a lot of, you know, a lot of scenario testing for them around who they have to support in their family, you know? So how much money do we need to, you know, set aside for that, that, that uh, person? Plenty of times I get, I get people who have a family member that doesn't have any resources or very little, and they have to kind of keep one eye on them because it's either a parent or a sibling that's got maybe some other issues going on and and they need to um, just keep an eye on that person and make sure that they're okay, you know? So like that. So, so you said by the second and third meeting, you're getting into what, what you had framed as discovery exercises. So can you talk a little bit more about what, what those are? I mean, like, is this your own process is this like a, a the the Kinder style process? Well, is it's this a little else? Yeah. It's it's a little bit of Kinder, and it's a little bit of what we've developed, and then it's a little bit of some of the exercises that we've uh, that we use from the Sudden Money Institute. But we're the communication preference is definitely from SMI. We're really looking at how do people like to receive information. If they go quiet, should we give them space, or should we 
intervene at some point to, you know, do they want like a day to think about whatever we're talking about? Or do they want us to jump in and keep them moving? Like what it, what is their particular way of, of taking in information? Oh, interesting. And so it's just literally like these are blanks or like multiple choice options on a, on a questionnaire. And so I could say like, how do you like receive information? You know, email me, call me, we got to do it in a meeting, whatever it is. But it's also like, I like to get to the bottom line and then we can drill down and give any detail. Like for instance, that's my, and one of the major things about communicating with me is like, I don't give me all the detail and take me to Paris and back. I want to know the bottom line of whatever we're working on and then we'll drill down and get into the detail. So that's like a particular style I have. And other people, they take in information, but they're very quiet because they're sort of uh, integrating that information. And sometimes they need a day or two to sort of think about the things that we're talking about, you know, and then come back and have another conversation about it and have questions. You know, they need to think a little more or, or sit sit with it, you know. And some people just get quiet when you're talking about money because they're just, you know, internally a little freaked out. And so they may not tell you they're being freaked out, but you can, I can usually see it, but, you know, sometimes they're like, yeah, don't mistake my lack of response for inattention. You know, I'm paying attention. I'm just not communicating back to you, you know, so things like that. And so that's literally like a questionnaire that Sudden Money Institute has and and provides you to use because you're, you're, yeah, that particular piece does come from sudden money. Um, and then the wellness worksheet, I kind of adapted from another, some holistic practitioners I know. So what's, what's, what's the wellness? That's, that's, that's the one where we have like we broken life down into 10 areas and rate yourself on a scale of one to 10 in these areas, you know, so one might be, you know, well-being. You know, do you have any health issues that we need to plan for? You know, that that those kind of conversations might not come up if we don't ask. You know, how's your relationships with your family? You know, do you have great relationships with them? Do you have some you have a great relationship with and some that are maybe estranged or whatever? So we want to understand, like, what's it like to be in your world? So can be, you know, what what about your you know, your career? How do you feel about your career? Are you doing things that light you up and inspire you? Or are you doing something that pays you good money and you feel like you got those golden handcuffs and you can't, you can't break out? So sometimes we start working with people and they leave that career and do something else because we work on what's really important to them. And then they start to focus on that. And then they get very clear they're not going to stay in that particular job. And then we can kind of coach them through that process and help them with the financial piece of it, you know? So we do, we do a lot of that work. We use the um, Kinder Hearts Core Grid. We want to get to the source of what's really important to folks. The kin, what's that one? The Kinder Hearts Core? The Kinder Institute Hearts Core Grid. So it looks at life from across the top. It's like three categories, Hearts Core, Ought To, and Fun To. So down the left side, it's like Hearts Core Have, Hearts Core Do, and Hearts Core Be, right? So we focus on the Hearts Core column first. And we look at, if you think about life is whole and complete, nothing missing, what's there? What's there in life? What do you have to have in your life? You know, so for me, home is really important. Home that I designed. I, you know, it's kind of like my little sanctuary. So when I leave my office and I go to my home, it's like, I want to close that door and feel like, oh, this is the best place to be, right? I can rejuvenate, can give my all all day and go home. And then next morning, I'm like a new person, you know, I walk out that door. And so for me, that my home is uh, something that be in my heart's core have, you know, but I, I like to drive a nice car. So I drive an Audi. And so for me, having a really nice car that's very comfortable is 
So having my Audi is very important to me. And I'm not really into, you know, so much the material things, but yet that's something that's really means a lot to me. Having a solid machine that responds well, that feels right when you're driving it. And I feel safe, you know. So for instance, my relationship, you know, my grandchildren, you know, those kinds of things would be in my half category. And then the do category is hearts core do. So what are the things you do sometimes there's an overlap. So if you're a gardener, so having a garden might be in your heart's core have, and then doing would be the gardening, you know, creating my gardens, keeping them up or whatever that would be for you, you know? And then the being category is the being side of human being. So, so for me, it's about being generous, you know, being loving and accepting. And there's probably a few others in there, but that kind of gives you a sense of what that's like. And then you compare the heart's core to the fun too. So some people traveling the globe is really important to them and it would show up under their heart's core do. For me, I love to travel, but I live in a beautiful place. And if I never traveled again, I wouldn't feel like my life wasn't whole and complete. So for me, traveling ends up in the fun to do category. So things like that. You know, and then people, usually the ought to category down the middle is, and then of course it's always have, do, and be down the left side. So the ought to category is usually people's to-do list. So sometimes they put on the ought to have a financial plan. It's like, okay, I hope that's for you. It's not for me because, you know, I'm just here to support whatever you're up to. But, you know, but some sometimes they're really focused on that. I mean, a guy called me yesterday. He's been shopping for a financial planner for 10 years. And a few months ago, he found us listed somewhere on some site. And uh, so he started looking into us and doing his own research. And then he called us last week and said, I really want to work with you guys. So what do I have to do? So we started a meeting process. And so sometimes those are things that are really uh, strongly on people's minds. And sometimes it's, you know, they're getting closer to leaving their corporate job and they want to, they want to make sure they're okay, you know, for the next stage of life. So we use that grid and we really glean a lot of information about people. And sometimes the fun two category is really interesting. The first time I did it, I was in a kind of a darker place in my life and uh, not terribly dark, but you know, I was just sort of not really feeling self-expressed in my life. And I was trying to figure out, you know, I don't want to do that, but I'd like to do this. And so for me, the first time I did the Kinder Hearts Core Grid, I, I didn't have much in the fun to category because I was just sort of like re-examining my life. And so it, it uh, didn't feel like there was a lot of fun going on at the moment. But, you know, I'm actually a very fun-loving person and that's not the case today, but that was the case the first time I looked at it. Once we get done with that, then we start to work on the, we're all starting to, we've now collected all the data. We're, we're starting to do work on the cash flow and the final life planning meeting is really around visions and obstacles. So what is that fundamental why for you as a human being that gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you, you know, what are you most passionate about? Why does that matter to you? And then, you know, listing out the obstacles to get in the way, the external obstacles or the internal obstacles. One is sort of a variation on what Kinder does and the other is a, a right out of Kinder. You know, Kinder wants to discover the torch. I go a little deeper, more 10,000 foot view, you know, like what is that fundamental thing for you about your life. Why? What's your why? You know, what's underneath? So we do a vision, a life vision statement and, you know, Kinder does a torch and sometimes the torch changes because you might have a torch this year, but then next year you might have a different torch. So I kind of take it a little bit further and do a vision statement. And so this is all, this is all happening through this largely the second and third meeting that you're you're doing these does discovery exercises. Yeah. And, and then the fourth meeting is really the vision and obstacles. We've given them a money autobiography, you know, that so we, what's a yeah. money autobiography. So 
that's an exercise that was uh, put together years ago. I've sort of adapted it that Dick Wagner put together, and I've adapted it to a more of abbreviated version uh, with his permission before he passed, of course. It really walks people through like, okay, let's figure out what your money story is, right? What's your conversation around money that has never maybe been distinguished or articulated? So think about childhood. What's your first memory of money? What was good about that or not so good about that? What was your family's life like around money? What what was your culture? You know, did you have people that lived through the depression? You know, now it's getting harder to find people who have people who lived through the depression because those of us who have parents that did are older. So, you know, it's a little bit different than it used to be. Everybody had that. And now you say that to a, a millennial and they're like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> something they read in a book once, but they don't know much about it. You know, so it's sort of fun. Financial, financial crisis is pretty depressing for a lot of us. Yes, but- exactly. Exactly. So is this another like guided questionnaire thing? I mean, just like, how are you actually delving into people's money story? Yeah. So what, so what, you know, what some people do is they'll read a section, you know, the section on childhood and money, right? And they'll just write a paragraph or two about that. Other people just answer the question. So it's really designed to inspire thinking and kind of get it out of the gray matter and get it in black and white on, on a piece of paper so that you can kind of start to interact with some of those innocent messages that you might have created as a young person observing, you know, with an underdeveloped brain observing adults that maybe don't have great habits or, you know, like I grew up in a large family with a lot of kids and not a lot of money. So for me, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have a life like that was so stressful. I wanted to have a life that had a little more freedom to it. So I kind of matched my thinking and uh, to watching my grandmother who was an entrepreneur. So I was like, okay, you got to work for yourself. So you have freedom in your schedule, freedom to do the kind of work you want to do. And and you can make whatever money you want to make, you know, just a little bit less uh, relying on another person to employ me, you know? So we do a whole bunch of work on that. And then we go there, a whole section on your own personal on credit and on your personal adult life and kind of like your habits and kind of how, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, at this point in my life, I was really good with my money, but now I don't seem to be able to have a handle on it. So I, I, I carry a little credit card debt and I always seem to be a little bit behind the eight ball, but they make good money. So it's sort of like, well, that seems silly that you're making really good money and and you feel behind the eight ball, like you don't have any money, you know? So then when we get into the, when we really drill down in that cash flow, people can start to see this is where they're spending their money. So the money autobiography is inspired to kind of get them to be awake to what's their fundamental conversation around money and how they put that together. And, and it- and is yeah, this literally running from some kind of this template? Like there's a, you know, well, there's a, there's there's a, there's seven there's, questions for you to answer to formulate your money autobiography? It's, it's like three, it's two and a half pages, single space questions broken down into different categories. And then they look at the questions and sometimes they read a question and nothing resonates with them. It asks about religion. It asks about your family culture, you know, mother's side, father's side, you know, just ask you all these things so you could start to get your head around. Were you like me observing others and not wanting to have that life or or were you just sort of going along and everything was 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 fine until you became an adult and all of a sudden you realized, hey, somebody has to pay attention to this stuff. You know, so it sort of just depends on what your experience is. But the money autobiography, a lot of people think it's very cathartic because they've never really sat down and thought about it. So people tend to spend about 45 minutes putting that one together. And then they bring it to us. We we kind of go through the highlights of what they saw and set that aside. And now we're we're wrapping up the, that's helpful before the obstacles really, because it does kind of point to some of the obstacles people accumulate throughout life. And then, you know, we wrap up the vision and the obstacles and then start to really delve into the technical side of the, of the financial plan. 
you know, all the analysis and putting the plan together and figuring out their time. Now we kind of have a clue about the timelines and the goals and a deep understanding about their fundamental value systems. So that for us is fundamental to to any recommendations that we give them. And so then you've said you 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 start building towards cash flow planning. So how like what does this look like for you in practice? I mean, are you literally like pulling out a budgeting sheet and having them fill out where all the dollars yep. go? Yeah, we do that. We also work with e-money. So we have there's a spending feature on e-money. Uh, we guide clients through that. Every client that comes to work for us gets an, you know an account on e-money. We private label it, my financial vault. But you know, if they don't have any system that they use, then we recommend that they use that and link their accounts so we can start to really categorize their spending and look at it. So, you know, after we've spent three meetings just reviewing that and getting it what we feel is pretty buttoned up. Sometimes people have more of a hard time figuring out how they've been spending their money, but they're really focused on how they want to spend their money. So they'll create what they would consider their best budget or spending plan. And then we start to build the financial plan around that because then we can see, I mean, we've got an Excel tool that we've built and then we can see kind of like what's left over. If this is really what you're, you know, you're spending, a lot of times people come in and they'll say, well, you know, I'm earning 150000 I put away my 401k, but I really don't have much else other than that. And so when they give me their expenses and we look at it, and if the if the Excel sheet says you should have thirty or $40,000 left over and you don't, okay, where's that money going? You know, it's kind of like, I call it mystery money. So, you know, we kind of get into that and we go back and forth and, and we want to have a baseline for whatever their budget or spending plan is so that when we're doing the projections forward, then we got to think about, okay, well, if you stop working at some point in the future, how are those expenses and income and expenses going to change? So that there's a cash flow kind of now in life, depending on their age, but if they're like 50 and they're going to work for another 15 or 20 years, then they're probably going to adjust that cash flow over time. However, if they're 60 and they want to retire in the next five or six or seven years, they're going to be really paying close attention to that and trying to squirrel away as much money as possible to hustle so that they're prepared. So I'm curious, just from the the pure e-money end, like just how does this work in practice? Uh, I mean, like you you link them up, but then you have to wait for spending to come in for a while before you can actually have something to look at to say, here's where your money's going. Are you trying to use it to pull in prior data to figure out where money has been going? Well, actually, we, we're using it for money going forward, where that's going, okay. so that we can kind of verify what they're telling us about where they spend their money. Because usually I just have them start, like I said, don't worry about the income, don't worry about the tax. Taxes, I'll get that from your pay stub and your tax return. Let's just focus on what you know are your fixed expenses. We'll start there because that's kind of the easy part. It's that when you get to that discretionary spending that people don't really necessarily have a clue how they're doing it. You know, they like to eat out and they don't really know how much they're spending in restaurants. So getting all their accounts linked on e-money helps us understand. We start to see how they're spending their money. And so we can kind of challenge whatever they've thought they're spending their money on versus what's really happening. So- you said then by the time you're getting into the fifth and sixth meetings, you're now starting to draft a, a financial plan. So I'm, I'm presuming this starts coming forth for me money if that's your your planning software of choice, or are you more of a? Well, we have we have two different ones, but you know, our when we deliver a financial plan, we like to deliver a, a document, even though we know that tomorrow it's obsolete. But at least it gives people a baseline. But we do a summary in the beginning of the plan of all the life planning work we've done, so their vision and their obstacles and their their heart's core grid and all those things are kind of like that 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 deep dive work that we did in the beginning, and then we look at the cash flow that they've settled on is their cash flow, and then we get into you know the software project 
sections of the financial plan. And we try to limit the number of pages that we give them that's too technical. And we do, you know, we run Monte Carlo and all that stuff that you run when you're putting a plan together. But we try to keep it very focused on here's all the things you want to be focusing your life on. Here's your money. And here's how you're putting it away. And then here's how that's going to make a difference in the future and these dates and times of the things you want to do, like sell this house, buy another house or buy a second home or travel to Europe. I had a client last week that's been planning for five years to go to Greece and then the pandemic hits. So she, she, you know, when she finished her planning, we just kind of a wrap up and we go back and look at the beginning, what they came in the door with, what their concerns were. And then we compare it to where they're at at the end of the process. And she said, it's the first time, this woman's like 72 years old, first time in her life, she went on a vacation and she didn't worry about money because she got that she has plenty of money and she can afford to go to Greece for two weeks. And it's not going to disrupt her money for the future, but she actually can afford to do that. So it's sort of, you know, it's very fulfilling when people say, come to you and say things like that, you know, it's kind of like, wow, that's really great. Like, like she's a person that came in the door very worried about her money. And now she's like, I have enough money. I'm okay. I thought I needed $5 million. I don't. I need, I got three and a half. I'm good. I'm good there. I don't need to like worry or keep working or whatever. And, and I think you said that you have two different planning tools that you use. So what, like, what, what are you using besides eMoney? Yeah. So uh, we do use Money Tree software as well. We used that for years. And then about four years ago, we bought the eMoney system and we've been using the eMoney almost exclusively since. But we have certain clients that have pretty straightforward situations that have their original plans done in uh, Money Tree. So we'll just call up the software and update their plan for them. But if life's got more complicated or they're using um, e-money, uh, you know, regularly, we're just going to do the plan on e-money because my planner is just a whiz at it. Makes me happy because drives me crazy. <laughs> so what what led you what led you to e-money and to make a switch away from Money Tree? It had nothing to do with the planning software. It had everything to do with being able to aggregate people's accounts, having a safe portal where we can exchange sensitive information safely. You know, I'm always focused on technology and cybersecurity. It's a it's a big thing. You know, we're a small firm, and I hear stories of small firms that don't really have that buttoned up. And you know, I, it's always just been very important to me. So I make sure that that's covered for my clients. And I I love overall. I love eMoney, and I think it does a great job. And it's a little complicated, but it's okay because there are people that have more complex situations and they actually require a more complicated software. So so that's interesting that the portal and not, I guess, not not just the portal for account aggregation and data flows, a lot of that helps, but the, the portal to specifically use it as your secure document sharing location and, and you know, confidence that would rather let eMoney figure out all the fancy cybersecurity stuff as an enterprise than doing it as a solo firm. Like that's a, that's a lot easier to let their technologists do it. <laughs> Exactly. You know, my method has always been spend your money on technology because it's going to make you more efficient. You're going to make your clients safe and work with the very best of the best in any uh, outside vendors that you work with. And when I hired a cybersecurity consultant, he said, oh my God, I've never seen a small firm your size that actually had all their technology buttoned up like that. But I'm like, well, I want my stuff safe. So why wouldn't I make sure that I got the best people? And he said, you did exactly the right thing. You go with the very best in the business and knock on wood, you know, you should be covered. <laughs> but 
but it's something we monitor on a regular basis. So yeah, so that's why we chose eMoney for for all the services that they provide. And so I'm I'm wondering though. It sounded like you said you like there's a meeting around five or six for the draft of the plan, and then there's a a meeting number seven for seven for the final version of the plan. The final so, version of the plan, and then the execution. We want to make sure that we're executing whatever plan we've worked out. We tend to spend the last two months of the six month process. Sometimes it's four weeks, sometimes it's seven or eight weeks, but we try to spend that last period of time really focusing on that the client is implementing everything that we're recommending for them. So might be reallocating their 401ks or, you know, we've, they've asked us to consolidate their accounts and have it all make more sense. So, you know, that's where we work with AssetMark. We design the plans, the investment plans, and then uh, AssetMark does the implementation. So they've done all the due diligence on the money managers and the certain managers that resonate with us. And we typically will do a few different managers for each client, depending on their area of expertise. So we'll do some broad-based global allocation and then have some tactical overlays or some some of the managers that are kind of like focusing on limiting loss. Some are focusing on a little more alpha on the upside. And so we get a nice, a good cocktail there. And then we can go forward and monitor that for them. And then we would be meeting with the client after that, probably two to four times a year, depending on their level of assets. So that last couple of months is really to make sure they're implementing and find out where their pain points are. Are they focusing on the budget or they just throw their hands up and walk away? And it's not, then it's probably not going to work out if they're not having some ability to keep an eye on that. So we want to make sure that it's working for them in their life. So that's why we try to get the bulk of that work done in the first four or five months. And we're meeting with people like in the beginning, the first four meetings are like 90 minutes every three weeks. So we want to kind of kickstart this and get them going and keep the momentum going. And then, you know, from there, sometimes at the end, the meetings are more like an hour, just checking in to make sure things are moving, make sure they're setting up their estate planning. If they need something new in their insurance world, we analyze their coverage and then we can make a recommendation where they can get that work taken care of if they don't have somebody already, that kind of thing, just to make sure everything is buttoned up and moving forward. I, I guess I'm just wondering process wise, like from draft plan to financial to to final plan, like because I think you had said you you like to actually create the the deliverable, right? I, I like to call it the plan, capital T, capital P. So like, do you do you make the plan like walk them through it and say this is a draft? If you don't like stuff, then we're gonna go back and change it, and then you come back in the meeting with a final the plan. Yeah, I mean, we we do the first draft and sometimes they have a couple scenarios they want us to run. So we'll do a little scenario testing and we'll sit with them with the draft. We we think it's pretty buttoned up, but then we go through it and sometimes they're like, yeah, I know I said I was going to buy that house in Vermont next year. I'm probably not going to do that for five years. So then we would go back and we tweak and adjust those those changes that they might really have. Or they'll say, well, I was going to sell my house, but now I think I want to keep my main house and just have a little weekend place later on. You know, whatever the thing is that they're focused on, we kind of look at the timelines for those. And then when we review things with them, sometimes they'll be like, yeah, I realized my cash flow. That was kind of BS. I didn't really, I'm not really doing a good job with that. So I'm, I'm seeing that I need to update that for you before you run the final, because that's going to impact how everything looks. So in going through that draft, we can really kind of fine tune things with them and see I have people that were going to retire in five years in California. Now they're retiring in March because of COVID just made them crazy. So, you know, it's like all of a sudden we're changing the whole plan because they've moved their deadline up by several years. So, you know, once we get that sort of the first one down, it's, it's uh, much easier to go back and then just adjust the scenarios and, and uh, figure out how that's going to impact their bottom line later. So how long are these 
meetings? I mean, just is, is, like, is each meeting an, an hour plus meeting to go through all this? Or are some of these sort of like shorter and more focused? Do some of them actually go, go a lot longer just because of the, the depth of some of the conversations and the exercises that are involved? Well, we try to keep it to 90 minutes. Sometimes the first meeting's a little difficult when you have a couple to keep it to 90 minutes. So I tell them, be prepared to go two hours. And then after about the fifth meeting, you know, when we've gone over the draft plan or whatever, and then then they tend to be about an hour long. The last few meetings tend to be an hour. Sometimes they're 45 minutes. Sometimes they're an hour and a quarter, but you know, for the most part, they're right around an hour as we get further along in the process because we've done a lot of work behind the scenes so that that deliverable is, is pretty organized around what they're wanting to see. And so how are the meetings spaced out from each other? Like just how long does it, you know, if, you've, if you're going through what maybe seven odd meetings, like how long does it take just to get through the process? It, it takes roughly four to five months. We try to meet with them every three or four weeks to keep them on track. And of course, then, you know, life interrupts that. You know, I got a guy, we just started working with him on his planning process and his mother took ill. She's out in the Midwest. He supports her, her round the clock care. So he's like, look, let's just cancel any meetings we have on the books for now. I got to go out there, sort this out. I will be available to start this process properly with you in January when my sabbatical starts. So he's kind of like a busy executive type guy and he's getting a sabbatical in January. So he's just decided, you know, we've been trying to get him going, but he keeps having these delays. So now we're like, okay, let's just wait and start this in January. But the meetings are pretty, you know, we find that you don't want to do one and then not have another meeting for two months because people lose track of where they're at, what they're doing, why, you know, what does it matter? You know, it's sort of, they lose, they sort of get lost in the process. So we try to keep them on track once we get going. And so like, do clients get I don't know, impatient with going through all this? Like, Do you worry about just client fatigue when it's as many meetings as it is over as many months as it is? Or just when clients come to you, they know that this is the process and what they're getting into. And so if they sign up, they've already got buy-in for, for going through the just the meetings and the process. Yeah. Well, we lay it all out for them. They get a lot of information from us with a layout of what we're going to cover at most of the meetings. You know, we've got our process and then they've got like life changes and they got to, you know, they got to stop and do something else for a meeting and then we'll go back to the process. But but for the most part, they know what is going to be involved. We're very clear about it because it's kind of like you're climbing a mountain and you're tied to somebody and you don't want anybody jumping off. You don't want to jump off and you don't want them jumping off because that's not going to be, it's going to be one more thing they didn't finish in their life. So we want them to feel successful and to really get an infrastructure around their finances that serves them and keeps them feeling like they know what's happening. So that's a process. So, so how do you think about this from the firm end of just the the sheer amount of time that this takes? You know, just as we'd said earlier, like there are a lot of advisors that, for better or worse, you know, de- tend tend to do their planning process in usually two or three meetings, and so which uh, most of us will get through in in. Uh, anywhere from about three to six weeks, depending on how quickly you schedule those follow-ups. You've got this seven-meeting process that can run four, four plus months and just time and labor intensive for the firm. So just how, how do you think about that relative to other advisors out there and the, and the time it takes? Well, I, I would be, I'd, I'd probably make a lot more money if I didn't do this in-depth process, but this is the, the process that I 
I have discovered really works to give people what they need to go through life and be empowered around their money. So like I said, it's a big commitment for us as well as the clients. So we are a little selective about who we say yes to. At this point, I have about 15 people that want to start working with us and we have to spread them out a bit so that we have the brain space and the staff support to get them through the process. It's it's a very big uh, commitment on our part. We do get paid. We have these retainer packages that basically, as long as things go along pretty much the way we expect they will from the beginning, you know, give or take an hour or two, we, we uh, you know, we'll, we'll stick to whatever we contract with them for. And so what, what are those retainer packages? Like, how do you, how do you actually price all of this? So, well, we have, you know, figured out, backed into how much time it takes, how much staff time, how much of the advisor time it takes to put these together. Some of the planning meetings, as we get into the technical end, they'll probably have more of my staff talking to them to make sure they've collected all the updated information that's going into the plan. They're working directly with the planner who's putting the plan together. And then they come to me to review things right before it's going to go to the client. Or if there's a, you know, if they bump up up against something in building the plan, then they would get me involved. But my staff, we do this as a team. And so my, my clients on understand that while I'm the lead planner on this, they are going to be interacting with everybody on our staff. Everybody's got their area of expertise and the things they focus on. So they really want those experts helping them in those different areas. So people understand, you know, that's why we do the initial one hour consultation. We want them to understand that this is, this is a ride. And so we start out, I think our basic plans for an individual for the six month process starts out at $4,000 for couples. It's like $4,500. And they go up from there based on the complexity. So somebody comes to me with a million dollars, they're probably going to be paying between five and 6,000, depending. I mean, I've had people that come to me and they've got 10 businesses. So that process is a little different because they're much more complicated and, you know, they'll pay $10,000 for the planning process and it takes longer. So, you know, it just depends on the situation, but that's kind of the basic range of things. And then the, on the financial transition process is really at least a year and sometimes a second year. And they, they start at 6,000 and go up per year, depending on, again, the complexity of the situation. You know, usually those situations are people have a lot more parts and they have a lot of emotion around whatever it is they're working on. So we have to allow the space for the emotion, but we don't do a lot with it. We just allow it to be so that they are, they can, you know, it's, it's the whole human being. It's not just the technical business side. We got a whole human being. And if they're having emotion, we want to understand like what's, what's going on with that. Is it because they lost a spouse? Then you're just going to be always have tissues on the table, right? There's always going to be some sadness there until they get to the other side of that. It's not ever going to go away, but they learn to live with it, right? And to include it in their world. But I work with entrepreneurs who who are working on six, creating six, six different businesses all at one time. And while I think for me, me, that would make me crazy. It's perfect for them. They're a quick start. They're out there with great ideas and they got people working for them and pulling things together. And you know, those people need some place to sort of have somebody bring them, have them take a deep breath. Let's focus. Like what's our priority list? What are we working on today? And then we reorganize. We meet about once a month and then they're really looking at, okay, these were our priorities last month. Are, are these still our priorities? Are we moving something around? We kind of break it out with now, soon or later. That's a sudden money tool that's very effective in helping people prioritize, you know, when they have multiple, multiple things that they have to really get to, you know, we kind of go through that process with them. I mean, we've got a lot of different tools, more than a hundred. So it really depends on what comes up in the meetings, what tools we're pulling out in that transition process. So when you think about this core planning process, just the the span of, of seven meetings, 
and the stuff that goes with it. Like, I mean, do you, do you know how, how long does that take you? I mean, how much time is involved with this at the end of the day? We charge $250 an hour. So on the, you know, for me as the planner, my time is cost more than my staff, of course. That's why we try to have staff work on certain parts of it so that we're more efficient. And, you know, it takes, it takes a while. So, you know, it's, uh, it's probably in the basic planning process, it's probably somewhere around, you know, 10 hours, more complicated things tend to be more like 12 or 15 hours. Some of them are more complicated. It's like 20 hours to get it all done. Some of it's advisor time, which is like I said, a little more expensive than, than staff time, but yeah, it's got, there's a lot of parts, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of pieces. Well, I assume, I mean, just, well, just the sheer, you know, seven meetings that are an hour and sometimes an hour and a half, like just that, that alone will that alone is Rack up is, almost ten hours of mm-hmm, of meeting mm-hmm. time. Exactly, and then there's the behind the scenes stuff. So, although it sounds like, or just I'm presuming from the pricing that you you don't necessarily have a huge amount of behind the scenes stuff priced in. That the the biggest driver of this is just literally all of the meeting time. The biggest driver is the meeting time, but there's plenty of. You know, I don't have the I don't have the chart in front of me, so you know I'm just trying to remember, but you know, the different packages have different amounts of time and, and we have some that we're spending nearly 30 hours uh, on. So just really depends on the package, but yes, there's a good amount of staff time that goes into the collection. I mean, the bulk of the expense really is my time in meetings and then the planner's time to put that plan together. Although mine's pretty zippy, you know, it can, it can take, you know, three or four hours to actually put the plan together and proof it and make sure it's all buttoned up and then I'm ready to present it to the client. So, you know, uh, anything I can hand off does help the process be a little more efficient and cost-effective for the client. So I work mostly in the middle market, you know, with people that are, you know what they say, the mass affluent or, you know, people that are professionals that are working and making good money and saving money. So, you know, the bulk of my clients are between 500,000 and about three and a half million. I have some over and I, I have a few younger people that are, you know, building their wealth. I don't, I'm not really the servicing advisor on those, but they, you know, they get set up in their planning process and then somebody else takes over and kind of manages those folks to keep them moving forward. But I, but I guess from a pricing end, just you set a price up front in the cost based on your estimate of the complexity and that's what you move forward at. You're not literally billing them hourly and then you know, as are invoicing after the fact, basically. Right. We we are tracking. We track every everything we do, tasks. We track client time. We don't track for things like sending them an invoice or my scheduler calling them to get them scheduled. But we are administrative stuff we don't charge them for because that's really included in my hourly rate. But the other things, anything anybody's working on building the plan or doing some work with them on their budgeting, that is billable time. We track it and pretty I have to say we're pretty we're pretty on the money as far as like what what it takes. Every once in a while, we get into it with somebody and I tell and I tell them in the beginning, look, it looks like this is what you, you're asking for. This is what we can do. This is the amount of hours we have. But every once in a while, we get in there and we find out, okay, there's really transition planning. So we have to do stop, you know, change, start. So, you know, we'll say, okay, you can see that this is much bigger than we were initially thinking it would be. So we're not going to be able to do it for this price that we agreed to, or we'll be three and a half months in and we've already spent all their money. You know, it's like, okay, we got to have a conversation because this is definitely bigger than you and I thought it might be. They've been great. I mean, I've had some people where they spent $2,000 more than they expected to, but I tell them if something comes up, I'm going to let you know right away and we'll make an adjustment and we'll work it out with you. You know, but if we're in, if we're within an hour or two, I don't, I don't charge them extra. I just, you know, get it done, get it out the door. And so then talk to us about how the financial transition process is different. I think you just said like you, 
it has different pricing. It, it, it can take a year or two just because when we're going through big transitions, it takes a while to process. But what does that process look like or how is that different in terms of the, the meetings you have and when you have them and what you're doing? So we, with those folks, we tend to meet with them monthly. Sometimes we have people like, I have a wonderful favorite client that's been with us for over 10 years. And she came to us on a recommendation from her estate planning attorney in DC. Her husband committed suicide and, you know, they, you know, they, they had just retired or he had just retired. She was about to be retired. And so it was really like disruptive, of course. And she was heartbroken. He'd been struggling apparently with mental illness, you know, for his whole life. And, you know, she came home and found him in the, in his study, you know, it was like really sad. So she was just devastated. And so for her, while we ultimately want to do the financial planning process, we have to really take it in small bites. And mostly what we do for a long period of time with the transition clients is we're looking at what are those priorities? What do you, what do you feel like? Tell me all the things you're worried about. You got to get done. Cause a lot of times people are like, oh, there's so much to do, but but at the same time, they're sad and their brain is like, you know, their cognitive ability is a little bit depressed at the moment because they're they're so emotional and they're dealing with this big shift in life. So we want to slow down that process, get from them everything they're thinking about so we can capture it for them and then help them to prioritize what do you really need to do right now? Like some of them are like, oh, I have to sell this big house. I can't live here. Okay, but you don't need to do it now. So am I okay? There's another tool called am I okay? So we look at, okay, what are these things that you're concerned about? And let's quickly look at the financial piece to make sure that you're financially okay for a period of time so you can make that decision when you feel like all of you is on the case rather than doing it under duress because you just lost your spouse, right? So in that instance, we had to do shorter meetings. You know, sometimes we had to do 30 minute meetings every two weeks because they just couldn't handle more at any one time. Other times we have to do an hour and we can do that every, you know, three to four weeks. That's fine. It just depends on how every person handles transition. Some people are used to pivoting and they can do that fairly well. Other people, something like the, the situation I described with my client whose husband uh, passed away, you know, that's a different, that's a whole different animal. So we just have to sort of tread lightly and, and help them feel safe that they don't have to make a lot of decisions. Let's figure out what needs to be made right now. Figure out how much money you need to cover the basics for your situation so you can kind of stay put and and kind of go forth from there. So we do a lot of prioritizing and reprioritizing uh, over the months that we're working with them. And so I guess less planning, I guess even as we traditionally think about it and and more just the words that come to mind to me is just counseling of just kind of counseling through let's do monthly check-ins and just how's it going? How's life going? How's the transition going? Is, you know, is the money lined up to be where it needs to be to do the things that are going on right now, but we don't need to deal with all the rest of the change stuff. Yeah. So that's a little bit different in that regard. So we sort of have to dance in the circumstances with whatever's coming up for them, but we want them first to feel like they're okay. They don't have to make a lot of decisions they don't need. That's the decision-free zone through the Sudden Money Institute. It's a it's kind of a funny name, but we, we only make decisions we have to make. We don't make any decisions we don't need to make. And then, you know, we're able to coach them how to talk to family. A lot of times, you know, when you lose a spouse, people will say things, silly things to you like, well, what's the big deal? You don't have to worry. You, you know, you have life insurance now. You have plenty of money. 
And it's like, it's not about the money. It's about the human being, you know, that's when, what they're experiencing. So, so we, you know, we, we tell them, call us anytime. We're here for you. And we schedule according to what they can kind of tolerate. Sometimes we start out at hour long meetings and then we switch it up because they're just in an upset space and they really can only deal with a small amount of time. So we make the meetings shorter and a little closer together. It just kind of, you have to dance with it with them. And so now talk to us a little bit about asset mark. I guess it's more generally that the investment implementation side of things. So I'm gathering just you, like you don't do any of the investment management and trading in-house as you said earlier, like no, no, no custody, no discretion even. So it's, it's all, it's all ultimately outsourced for, for asset mark to implement as TAMP, TAMP's doing what TAMP's do. Right. So we, we're trained by Asset Mark and to understand all the different investment managers that are on their platform. It's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful, com- very comprehensive. They do a lot of practice management with us to help us build our business over time. They've done a great job. And we're, at this point, we're one of their top 100 clients. We've worked with them since 2005 when we started the company. We were with a different TAMP who basically dropped us like a hot potato and just like blew us off for meetings. And we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We have to, we have to have somebody who manages the money for us, you know? So we were introduced to Asset Mark and they turned out to be the perfect partner for us. So of course we have access to their e-wealth manager website. And so we're able to go in and build the investment plans you know, in their software, drag and drop, so to speak, the different managers we want to work with and why. And of course, dial up and down the risk level based on the goal of the money. So, you know, somebody could have three different risk levels in in their overall accounts based on what that pool of money needs to do. And so why, I guess like just why, why Asimark or what led you to Asimark in the first place? Because there's, it seems like there's a bajillion TAMPs out there these days. Yeah, of course there are, but they've been doing it since the mid nineties. They just really know what they're doing. I was originally attracted to them by the staff I met. They were really very comprehensive and very attentive. The company was started by three advisors. So I liked that about it. So they understood our world and what we're dealing with uh, day to day and taking care of people. No, certainly our side of the business is not the easy side of the business, but it is really valuable. I find it extremely fulfilling. So I used to manage portfolios in the prior company. And at some point I was like, I'm really good at this, but I don't really want to do this. I want to do the planning work. There's got to be smarter people that can do this, not at a retail level, but at an institutional level at a very good price point and very high level of asset management. And I need to go find those people because I think that's a better mousetrap than what you know I was doing at the, uh, the other company it was all retail, mutual funds. And it just was like, oh, God, you got to be kidding me. It wasn't what I thought was the best way for people to manage their money. So how does, so how does this work from a, a, a pricing perspective? There's our fee for um, monitoring the managers, meeting with the managers. We meet with them throughout the year. We go to a couple conferences a year. We're in constant contact with AssetMark. They, you know, they of course have a whole back office that does all the processing of the business. We can direct it from here. When a client says, yes, I love this portfolio, we can prepare the paperwork and have them sign off on it and then push a button. It lands at AssetMark and they take it and open the accounts and start the transfer process happening. And sometimes we have to do the transfers because they're rollovers, but I an operations guy, that's all he does, is handle all the transactions and make sure that everything is buttoned up the way it's supposed to be and monitors to make sure the transfers are happening. He's in touch with AssetMark, but it's all mostly done electronically on their 
on their website that we have access to their eWealth Manager website. So we can see all the clients. We can, you know, go in and uh, submit documents on their behalf and things like that. So, so they kind of handle all of that piece and we just monitor what's going on with it. So we charge a, a fee. It's usually starts at 1% and goes down based on the volume of money. And if it's a very small account, we might charge more like 1.2% because it's a small amount of money so getting that set up is going to it's going to cost a little more because what's very you know, what's very small in your Well context? like if we got like if we've got a client that's you know got a million and a half dollars with us but they're but they've got a a kid that's uh, got a Roth IRA account you know we we would help them set that up we're not really going to so much interact too much with that person with the, you know, say they got $10,000 in a Roth IRA. We're going to set them up. So they're doing systematic investing. We're going to make sure they've got good managers doing it. And Asset Mark provides a couple of programs that they manage where they've got the multiple managers under the hood. And our side is very automated in the way we send reports to them. And we send them a letter at least once a year, letting them know that we're here if they want to talk about anything. And then every couple of years, we have a live phone call with them or, or a Zoom meeting just to kind of, you know, look them in the eye, make sure the risk tolerance hasn't changed and check in on what's going on. But for the most of our clients have larger amounts of money in there, you know, we're meeting with them quarterly. And then how do you handle, I'm presuming uh, like Asset Mark's got its own platform fee. If you're using ma- uh, third-party managers on there, they, they've got a, they've got a, a fee. So like, how did like, do these add up? Do you pay some of theirs out of yours? Does, you know, client pay separately for each? Like, no, how does the that client, work? the client gets one flat fee. So, and when we create the investment plan, they get one flat fee. They do break out what goes to the advisor and what goes to the asset managers. And out of the asset manager cost is any cost that uh, asset mark has plus the money managers. You know, we've got a lot of separately managed accounts. Those tend to cost around 1% on the manager side and go down from there. Our fees around 1% and goes down from there. Most of the our clients that are in the $2 million range, they're paying about 1.3 or 1.5% a year all in everything, all their reporting, the tax work, all of it, right? So we, we, it's a very good price point, I think. We have a couple of clients that only have the separately managed accounts and they tend to be more like about 1.6 or 1.7, but they have them because they've got custom bond programs or custom stock programs or ESG programs where they're really focused on the environmental, social and governance screening and and advocating. So it really depends on who the manager is, what their different fees are. But when we put it all together, we try to keep them somewhere in the ballpark of around one and a half percent or less if we can. If they've got volume, we can get it below one and a half. So we try to keep it very reasonable for them. So just in this world where I feel like so many advisors talk about the 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 proverbial one percent fee and just, you know, then by the time you actually get all the all the different people at the table who need to get a piece, we we end up higher than that. So as you said, you, you kind of end up more like one one point three to one point five all in. Just like does that worry you? Is that a is that a challenge? No, I don't get challenges at all. I mean, clients want to know and we tell them. We show whenever we show results of the programs we put together, we're showing them after expenses and that's what they care about. What do they get to keep? You know, our 1% ends up getting whittled down to 0.67 or 0.7 on many, many cases. So we're not really getting the full 1% because they're getting price point breaks as the volume of money goes up. So, you know, we're starting at 1% and going down from there. So clients know exactly what it costs and we show them the results after the expenses. So they're uh, very pleased when they see that. 
and it's institutional pricing. So while they could pay somebody 1%, a flat 1% in a brokerage house, they're not talking to them about what does the asset management actually cost? Are they doing it internally in their company? Is, is the, the broker doing the asset management? That's not a really smart thing to do. You know, that's not the brightest minds at the table managing your money, not from my perspective anyway. You know, and I've been in this business for, you know, I don't know, 22 or three years. So, you know, it just seems to me that I tell people I'm a fiduciary. I'm going to show you what I feel is the best thing. You don't like that. We can show you something else. Sometimes I've got, I've had high net worth people that don't want the separately managed accounts. They want us to build a program. It's typically made up of exchange traded funds. You've got the core holdings and then some tactical pieces overlaying. One is, you know, avoiding loss. One is avoiding, you know, is, is trying to give us a little more alpha and then a bond strategy to sort of balance it all out. And they prefer that. And those folks can usually come in and write around 1.3 to 1.5. So they're, they don't want to spend the money on a separately managed account, but it depends on the client. So what does this add up to just in terms of total clients on the, with the firm now? Like how many are you serving in the aggregate through all of this? Well, we've got about 200 families we take care of. That includes a couple of small, I think four small 401k plans with, you know, up to a million dollars or $2 million in them. Got a few of those, but we don't really focus on that business. They tend to be clients we take care of who are small business owners and they can't really find a a platform for doing a small plan like that. So we'll do it for them because they're our client and we're looking after them. But we're, you know, we got about 200 families and we we have things, our processes in, in place to every single process. You know, somebody calls up and wants to change a beneficiary. How do you do that? What are all the steps? What are the backup checks and balances to make sure everything goes off the way that they ask? Or they're asking for money or they're adding money or taking, you know, like all these different things that people need to service their accounts. We have a process in place for everything. So our production manual really for how to run this business, it's over 100 pages because every single process is documented. And, you know, I hired some new people this summer and they were able to come in and go to work. And literally within about 10 weeks, they were very self-sufficient on their own, doing what needs to get done and verifying that everything is happening the way it's supposed to happen. And then following up with the client to confirm that it's done. So we're very much focused on that process. It keeps us efficient and it makes sure we do right by the client. And so how does this break down on a, on an asset basis? If you're, I guess not, not assets under management, but advisory, like what's the asset base that ties to 200 families now? Well, we, we do have, you know, probably 30 or so of those families that are there don't have assets with us. So uh, on the, you know, on the assets under advisement, it's right now we're in the neighborhood of about 125 to 30 million and they're beating the door down to get in and they're, and everybody coming in these days is walking in the door with a million dollars or more. And it's kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of like, I have to pinch myself because, you know, there were a lot of years where we just sort of struggled along to build and you'd get somebody with a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000 and it'd be like, oh my God, this is such a slog, you know, it's just going to take forever to build this thing. But now it's really got to kind of taken on a life of its own. We've gotten more known around the country and it makes a difference. You know, we got people that call us and they say they heard this podcast or that, that they heard us on the radio or something and it you know I was gonna ask just like where I mean where are clients where are clients coming from I think you said earlier you've you've got effectively a, a waiting list at this point because you can only get so many people through the process at once so just where's the where's the business coming from or where have you built it over time just to get to the point of 200 families and 100 plus million dollars you know, I have to say the bulk of our new clients are coming from referrals, at least two thirds. 
And then we've got a third that comes from very limited marketing. Like I said, we've we've done some radio, a little bit of radio where people have interviewed us, and we've done a couple podcasts. Uh, we did a we did a, a podcast with W, the one in New York, the 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 public radio station in New York. I forget their letters, but uh, we did one with them like two and a half years ago, and we get people from all over the country that call us, and they heard me on that podcast talking about how to get a, you know, kind of like how to start getting your head around your money. And they're just like, we heard your podcast. We want to hire you. And I'm like, okay, well, let's have a meeting and talk about what you want, need, and what it costs to work with us. And they're like, yeah, fine. Where do I sign up? Here's my money. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of interesting that that podcast, I did a, you know, a 40 minute podcast with WNYC, that's who it is. And two and a half years ago, and the thing just keeps paying off. And it was just 45 minutes of my time. You know, it's pretty wild. So, you know, we get some of that. We, we do a very limited advertising in a local lifestyle magazine that is more for folks in the Hudson Valley region that are really focused on a more holistic lifestyle. And then we do some underwriting of WAMC out of Albany, the NPR station. And we focus because we have a lot of well, now it's they're all moving to the Hudson Valley, but it used to be that we had a lot of weekenders that that had a house here but lived in Manhattan during the week, and so we we focus our our underwriting on Friday through Monday, so that when people were here for the weekend, they would hear us and they know we have an office in New York, so we can meet with them in New York or the Hudson Valley. You know, we've got a good flexibility there. So those and the other thing we do is we we sometimes underwrite like fundraisers for local organizations that get us in front of the right kind of people that we want to work with. So of course, there's the local LGBTQ center. We underwrite some of the center in DC, the center in, in Kingston, which is just across the river from us, and the center in New York. We do some we do some uh, fund you know dedicate some fundraising dollars for those organizations, and that gets us in front of people on a consistent basis, kind of building the brand out in the world, and that seems to work. So for those people that find us out of the blue, you know, it's it's always fascinating to me, like how they how they discovered us. So overall, what, what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? Well, how freaking hard it would be. <laughs> I mean, I was an entrepreneur since I'm like in my late 20s. So I knew that that's not easy and that you have to deal with a lot of stuff, you know, but I didn't realize how how difficult it would be to find very great people to work for you. So I've had some struggles over time in finding great staff. I seem to be onto something now. I seem to be much more masterful at it. But, you know, there's the staffing is a is a difficult piece. My investment guy left last week. It's like, okay, I'm back in the investment business now. Okay, that's fine. So we're leaning a little more on Asimark because we're a platinum advisor with them. You know, we have a meeting with um, my contact there once a week and we kind of walk through the clients we're going to meet with. Do we have any reallocations, the new clients that are coming in and the monies that are moving and what are we thinking about that? And so we can send them back an email with a list of the proposals we need put together and they will put them together and then we proof everything and then meet with the client and we can either they can do the paperwork or we can do the paperwork. So right now we're leaning on them again to support us through that process until we eventually find the right person to fill that seat. Well, I guess indirectly, that's one of the appeals of having a TAM platform, partner platform like that is just there. there's someone to call if your person leaves. Right, right, right. Someone that can, you know, support you in certain things and, you know, you just do everything else. It's fine. You know, you work it out. So you'd said like you you feel like you've gotten more dialed in over time in, in trying to figure out how to how to find and hire the good people, the right people. So what what's changed for you in that regard? Like what what have you found now that actually works to get the right people? 
Well, uh, my, my interviewing process is a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper like conversation about what it's like to be here. Also, my staff makes the final interview with them. So we typically will, if we're pretty sure, if Jennifer and I are working with somebody, we're pretty sure we want to hire them, then you know we'll organize a staff lunch and we bring them in to meet everybody and we buy everybody lunch and they get to hang out for about an hour and a half or two. And, and then they give me the final word and then we hire them. And that's been helpful to bring other people into the process than just myself trying to squeeze it in between people. And I've also hired a fair amount of women that have never been in the business before, but trained them to be in this business. And, you know, those, those folks, have, you know, they had the right heart and soul. So it was like, I can't train them how to have a heart and soul, but I can train them how to do the work we have to do. So that is something that's, uh, you know, you can't, can't teach them how to have a heart. So they come with that. I can teach them the rest of the stuff. So what was the low point for you on the, on the journey? Well, the, probably one of the lowest points for me was when my wife decided she wanted to retire and she started talking about it for about a little over three years. And she's five years older. I'm 66. I'm not thinking about retiring. You know, my people die in their boots. So I'm just like, as long as my brain is functioning well and I'm doing a good job, I love what I do. It's my life's work. Why would I not do this? You know, I might do it less but I can't imagine not doing this. And so for me, the low point was because we built the business together. She just wanted to go and play with grandchildren. And, you know, she does, she's very busy. She does a lot of things. She's a lot of activities. And she just wanted to be doing those things instead of the drudgery of coming to an office like this every day. And it wasn't her passion to be in this business. It was really my passion to help people. And while she enjoyed it, you know, there was a point where she's like, yeah, I'm done with that. I'm ready to move on. So that for me was difficult to sort of get my head around because my initial thought was, oh my God, she's abandoning the ship. How can we do this? You know? We've always done it together. So it, it, it took a bit. It, you know, she didn't retire right away. She did retire this year in the spring. So that was a definitely, I had to rethink, you know, over these last several years, like, okay, well, if she's going to retire, how am I going to fill the gaps for all the great things that she handles in the business? So she still does our books, which is wonderful. She does our books and our payroll, but she's not quite ready to give that up. But I think there will come a time that she will. Just like small, small last financial safety now. Yeah, like, oh. you know, I'm going to hang I'm going to watch the money. <laughs> I'm just going to keep an eye on the money. Yeah, yeah. 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 So she just, um, she just recently gave up her, you know, her RI, her IAR status and she had several designations and she sort of turned them all in and she's very happy being retired. You know, she's kind of adapting to that. So it just happened in the spring and I, I've adapted very well. She, she's always been a huge contribution. So I was very concerned about it. But because we had that kind of three-year lead time, I was able to like really start to get my head around life without Susan in this business and start to put the structures in place and the people in place and get them trained and up to speed to take over some of the workload. And, and then we continue to expand. So this last three years has been like, feels like I'm drinking from a fire hose a bit. But we're now just sort of slowing down all the new, we've never had this this many prospects all at one time. And so, I mean, I used to be happy if I got five new clients a year. And now it's like, I got 15 that want to start in the next two months. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not going to happen. There's just not space for that. So it really is about like trying to rethink, like, how do we want to deal with this growth going forward? Because if we don't manage it, we're going to start to drop the ball with our regular clients and we want to be sure that we're taking care of them. We're just trying to be very careful. And of course, I'm always thinking about the future. Like what's our succession plan here? Who's going to take over the company? Um, very focused on bringing younger people in, which I think is really makes sense. Um, but I do 
I don't want to be the only advisor here. This is not my plan. I had I had three advisors over the last couple of years, and now I find myself being the only advisor on staff and trying to hurry up and get one of my guys to be an advisor. Uh, he wants to be an advisor, but he's got to finish the 65 and that kind of thing. So, you know, we just find ourselves in a spot right now that it's like, wow, that's interesting. I had three. I lost one. One retired. I got a new one. And now I'm down to me again. Okay. Not the plan, but there, there we are. So, so as you look back over the past fifteen plus years of building the firm, like what, what do you know now? You wish you could go back and tell you from fifteen years ago as you were getting started. Probably would have focused on uh, being better at staffing originally, because uh, you know the first several years, you know, we'd get somebody and then we they wouldn't work out, and we'd get another somebody and then they wouldn't work out, and then we get another somebody, and then at one point we had Susan's daughter working here. She stuck with us for many many years, uh, but she was a part time person. So you know, it's like really having that solid staffing would have been would have been good to have that handled earlier on. But we've been solid on that world for the last, you know, four plus years. So I feel like we've turned a corner in that realm. Although it does, you know, it does come up from time to time, just like, where's the next great person we want to hire? And so what was the the turning point for you in in getting to the point where that was solid? Well, it was working with our business consultant that we have through AssetMark that works work you know works very closely with us in helping us think about the business. And you know, we did a lot of work where we segmented clients. We we released about eighty five clients that followed us from the prior firm that were not that we couldn't make any you know we couldn't make a living on. We were actually actually costing us money. So at some point many years ago, we had to sort of call the the client base and figure out okay who's the ideal client, who do we want to work with, and how are we going to build this business around that? And that's what's currently happening now. The people coming in the door. Are are those people, which is great. But the, you know, working with them and getting job descriptions was important. And then figuring out how do you put comp together and then adding a 401k profit sharing plan several years ago. And then, you know, adding, trying to add a little bit of benefits every year to kind of build it out so that you, you can, you can be competitive with uh, larger companies, you know, really four years ago when I found Jennifer, um, she came in to be our office manager. And in five minutes, I realized this woman's going to help me run this company. She's extraordinary. She's, she was a not quite 50 and good experience, had worked in the music business, had worked on Wall Street for some hedge funds. And, you know, so she had a good broad experience. That's when it was like, okay, we're going to get busy. We're going to put together systems and processes so that we capture everything we do. We're going to have manuals. We're going to figure out the right comp for people. We're going to kind of get people for life, not, not people that are going to be here for three to six months, you know, and that and has made a huge difference. And then the money just is flowing our way. So it's like, you know, you get that infrastructure in place and now the money can flow. You know, it's an energetic thing. And I really appreciate all the places that we've come and having those those experts around me has made a huge difference to just really listen to my experts. And and out of curiosity, just what did you do to release 85 clients? I mean, just it's hard for us, like been with us that long, especially if they actually made the transition for you from where you were, which is like... They came with me. They were my loyalists. And now I can't keep them. Like, yeah. Well, it did take me a few years to sort of get my head around that fact. And I just couldn't believe it. And I'm like, you can't. They're humans. You can't just fire people. You know, when the recession hit, I got a phone call one day and I knew that I had this part of the book that I didn't really want to deal with. But when we left the other firm, we got sued and the lawsuit lasted seven years. So it was brutal. It was really brutal. And we weren't managing that much money. We were only managing like 20 something million. I mean, it wasn't even like that big a deal. But they just, you know, the person that owned the firm did that. That was a matter of course, how she did business. Somebody left. She immediately sued him to see if she could squeeze some money out of him. And we tried to negotiate in advance because she knew we wanted to have our own company. And so the lawsuit went on forever. But it was 
absolutely awful and it cost stupid money. And I just kept focusing on building the business and knowing that that was going on in the background. But we, when the recession hit, I got a phone call one day from a woman I never met that Susan used to service at the other company who had followed us. And we didn't even know why, because she didn't even have a relationship with us. But she was like, where are you going? You have to take care of me. We're like, okay, fine. So the attorney had told us that you can't cherry pick anybody who calls you, you have to take them. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, when you get in front of FINRA and you have a, you have an arbitration, you got to show that you are really doing the right thing by the client. So we're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. We did not want to start out with those clients. Not that we didn't love them as humans, but we knew that they weren't going to be profitable. So over time, we had put them in a, you know, basically it was, you know, at that point it was retail mutual funds and fund to funds where their account was being rebalanced for them. So this woman calls up, she's got a $3,000 account with me and she gets on the phone and I won't say the words she used, but she cursed me out. <laughs> I just happened to pick up the phone and what the hell are well, you I'll people teach you doing to pick with up my money? Yeah, I know. Right. I didn't, it was crazy. And I said, hold on a minute, please. And I put her on hold and I walked into Susan's office and I said, you better get that woman off this phone because the world is crashing all around us. I got a woman with $3,000 little IRA account with us. I don't even know this woman. We're sending her communication. She doesn't respond to emails or letters or whatever. And then she has the nerve to call up and say, what are you doing to my money? I'm down $300. She's down 10% and the world's down 50%. And I'm like, get rid of her. Okay. That was the only experience I needed to have when I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. We're going to have to just get this done and do it lovingly. So we, you know, we had people in high quality products, but it was a fund of funds. So it was getting rebalanced and their risk tolerance was proper. And so we sent them these amazing love letters and told them that, you know, in our new business, we've had to figure out what we're going to focus on and we're here for you. Should you inherit some money? If you want to pay us for an hourly consultation, we're here for you, but we can't, we can't any longer manage your portfolio because it's just, it's costing us money and we can't do it. And so did you try to like send them somewhere else or thinking, uh, I know some advisors sometimes like do partial sales of their of their books or you just said like, it's just not working. We're going to part it's, ways. Yeah, we, yeah, it wasn't working. We didn't really have anybody to send them to and they weren't, I didn't feel like, you know, it was a book you could sell. So we did make them house accounts. We assured them that their portfolios were in great shape and kind of on automatic and that their, the quality of their investments was very good. So we had a lot of people with MFS and these, you know, great allocation fund to funds so that they were, you know, we know they're going to be fine. You know, if they can build it, great. If you ever inherit some money or you have some questions, you can access us all the time. We have an hourly rate. We're happy to work with you, but you know, this is how we're going to be working going forward. I got to tell you, Michael, we got gifts, cars. We had people crying on the phone, you know, like we had people that came back to us because they inherited some money or they left the job and now they had some money to work with. It was really amazing. We did it in a very loving way. And, you know, we had a couple people that were pissed at us, but not that many. There was very few that were pissed, but that woman, she got the first letter. So what advice would you give younger, like newer advisors coming into the industry today and, and trying to figure out how to get their careers going? Yeah, I would say that you want to affiliate yourself with a firm that's focused on the client, not focused on the money. Because one of the things I was always frustrated by was what I consider the financial service industry's inability to focus on the client. So I was with that boutique firm for uh, seven years before I did my own thing. And, you know, they'd make it like, oh, they're here for the community and they do all this great work for the community. But then at the end of the day, I'd be excited about all the people I helped. And they, they'd say, okay, that's nice. But how, how much money did you make us today? So it was always the bottom line was how much money did you make us today? So it wasn't different than any of the big firms. And it made me crazy and it made me sad because... I'm really focused on, you know, helping people and guiding people and coaching people and 
I have always been of the belief that if you do that and you do it well, the money will take care of itself. And that's really where we're at today is that the money is just flowing. And, you know, like um, one of my new guys is from JP Morgan Chase and he, he came in here four months ago and he's like, I used to scrape and scratch to get $100 out of somebody. He said, people are calling you every day of the week and they're throwing 500000 a million and a half, $2 million at you. Like you don't even get on the phone and call. I said, call anybody. It just shows up because they know they're getting good quality work and we're not focused on the money. We're focused on the people. And that's the difference that it really makes from my perspective to do good quality food fiduciary financial planning. And so just for the newer advisor who's coming in and doesn't know as much the history of the industry, like how, how do you figure out the right one? Like how do you figure out which firms are client focused and not money focused? Because as you said, every, everybody puts on their website that they're all about the clients. Of course, but you know, well, I mean, I think you have to interview firms. I know I've had some young people that came to me, but they were more focused on making six figures than they were learning the industry. Like they didn't even want to do like a year. They just wanted to, they're like, oh yeah, well I could take this job, but you know, I'm, I'm really out of here. You know, it's sort of like, why am I going to knock myself out? Right. But they did go around and interview firms and they chose us, even though we weren't looking for a, a brand new planner. We, we had one for a while, but it didn't work out because they were very, very, they were just uh, unrealistic in their expectation about when they're going to start making a ton of money. I mean, we're we're always talking to, whenever I go to conferences or meetings, I'm always talking to young people and seeing if they're in a place where they're maybe not really very fulfilled, but they love to do this work, especially like I go to the sudden money conferences and meetings. You're already in the mix with people that are like-minded in the way they approach the work with a client. And so sometimes I've run into some younger clients that, you know, they're maybe looking for a new home. And and so I just keep my ears open and see who I meet and try to recommend that they do things like that. But, you know, there's a few places it could go and we'd love to have a, a younger advisor in here. You know, that would uh, make us happy. This is uh, episode 257. So if you go to kids.com slash 257, we'll have a link out for for Third Eye Associates. So if, if anyone is in the greater Hudson Valley area or would love to relocate there, we'll, we'll make sure you can find your way to uh, to reach out to Beth and the firm. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world to live in. I'll tell you that. As we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes that always comes up is the the word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, you've, you've had this wonderful, successful growth of the firm and, you know, ironically, like getting even more momentum now. But I'm wondering, how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, you know, I, I've mentioned it before, but I'm really passionate about guiding people to really get their head around their money and how it relates to different parts of their life because most people sort of have the money as a separate thing. And we're all about integrating your life and your money. So for me, kind of what's going on right now where we have this, we've become a known entity around the country, which is always shocking to me because I'm in this, the Northeast primarily. And so for me that I get these calls from around the country and they say, I want to work with you. I'm like, okay. But I'm sort of like, really? Where are you? Well, I'm in California or I'm in Maryland or I'm in Virginia or whatever. You know, it's like sort of fascinating to me. So I do think that over the last three years, sort of being able to absorb this new growth that we are experiencing. But I but I, I feel very successful in the way that, you know, our monies are growing, our client, the number of clients that we're impacting every year is growing. And, you know, that's really, for me, what gets me out of bed in the morning. So I feel great. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Thank you. 
Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.